Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is LaShawn, and I'm here with our public health panel, Sully, Ben, Gordon, and Will. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In this episode, we'll be discussing a TEDx talk by Dr. Jonathan Patz titled, Climate Change is Affecting Our Health. Is There a Cure? In his talk, Dr. Patz moves past the traditional ways of thinking about climate change, the classic polar bear on an ice sheet, to a more nuanced framing in terms of the effects of climate change on human health. He talks about the many ways public health is affected by climate change, whether it be through increased heat waves, hurricanes, waterborne diseases, and other issues, such as increases in air pollution. He then proposes some simple views we can all support, regardless of our views on climate change science. Alright, so we as public health professionals understand that climate change has a direct impact on public health and health impacts. So let's talk about some of these examples. Well, the first one that comes to mind is with climate change comes increases or decreases in temperatures. And we know that extreme heat or extreme cold can directly affect an individual's state of health. And oftentimes um, this affects people of lower SES or older individuals, people who are already living in vulnerable settings and just a whole whack load of health implications come out of this. And this is only just looking at temperature increases or decreases. Yeah, so from my experience, um, living in Jamaica, there's we tend to get a lot of uh, severe storms like hurricanes. And um, uh, as we've, you know, in the video by the TEDx talk by Dr. Jonathan Patz, uh, he talked about how the warming of the atmosphere um, is directly related to the strength of uh, these tropical storms. And as storms get stronger, they can cause more damage, not only to low-income countries, but they, as we've been seeing, more tropical storms getting into the mainlands of the United States. So that's that's from my personal experience. Right. So if we do have these increased hurricanes or tropical storms in maybe um, countries that may not be used to even having these or anticipating these, how can these affect the communities that are there and maybe on the health system? How does it affect that? If a lot of these communities or countries are facing these increased hurricanes or droughts and they don't have previous experience with them, then we know that their infrastructure is not ready for this. And they're also going to have a greater increased pressure on their healthcare system because you'll have people injured from this, whether it's from direct physical contact with these um, storms or increased infectious diseases that are a result of these storms as a secondary outcome. So I think the healthcare infrastructure is going to reach a similar impact of what's happening with COVID in the sense that it's just going to be overwhelmed. Right. And he was even talking about how um, increased flooding can cause mixtures with uh, drained sewers and it will cause a, a higher spread of infectious diseases in like water systems and stuff like that, which can really impact the health of the community and get everyone sick as well. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about climate change and what's going to happen in the future, but we can also look at what's happened previously where infrastructure is not there. In the case of what we learned with Bangladesh from our um, environmental health in our master's program, 
they did not have the facilities and infrastructure for proper plumbing when for using the toilet. So unfortunately, people had to defecate out in the soil, out in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. And then this was also near water sources, people, the rivers that people depend on for, you know, consumption and also other um, waterborne activities. So when they had increased rainfall due to their monsoon season, we can take that as a parallel for what happens if we have increased rainfall due to climate change. We're going to have the increased risk of waterborne diseases. So a lot of the evidence or examples that we've seen in the past, we can use them to mirror what's going to happen in the future. At this point, are we going to listen to it? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Ben, that you brought up rainfall, because one thing that people tend to typically associate with climate change is the temperature aspect, right? But when you consider climate change holistically, the climate is more than just the temperature. You know, you have things like precipitation, you have changing winds, you have changing atmospheric pressures, and all of these things can individually affect communities or groups. So I think that um, definitely it's important to move away from thinking about, you know, a polar bear on an ice sheet because mm-hmm. this issue is much more than just melting ice caps. You know, it's things like crazy winds or just even areas of lower pressure and just all sorts of meteorological changes that communities or regions have t- have never experienced before. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, even, you know, just a term global warming, when you think of warming, you think of something getting hotter, right? And as we've seen, that's problematic in terms of a definition of how we frame climate change. So for one example, um, if we go back to tropical storms and severe flooding, this can also displace a lot of people in vulnerable communities and create what's called uh, climate change refugees. So um, people who are essentially displaced for because of natural disasters, essentially. So the polar bear image and global warming doesn't necessarily communicate to people that whole communities have to move maybe have to move to a different communities where you can have overcrowding and the spread of communicable diseases. And one of the biggest uh, takeaway points that Dr. Patz was trying to get at was that the people that are most affected by climate change are actually the ones that are contributing the, the least to the climate change. So do you guys see any ethical dilemmas with this? So yeah, one, one example, just to categorize it a bit, um, I believe the estimates were if we take one of the global powerhouses, which is the United States, they produce uh, six times the global average in carbon emissions. So they are contributing to the problem a lot where you have, you know, um, maybe Caribbean countries or African countries who aren't major contributors to carbon emissions because they're uh, less developed countries. And we talked about rainfall uh, the problem with rainfall is not only that there's gonna, there could be more rainfall, there could be less. So when you have African countries where, um, you know, agriculture and the farming sector depends on kind of regular rainfall in order to harvest and grow their crops. Um, so now you have climate change influencing small communities all around the world uh, who aren't getting enough rainfall, getting droughts, and then this might lead to things like famine as well. And I think when we look back at what we talked about earlier about how countries don't have the capacity to deal with things like natural disasters or even just health systems being just nearly non-existent. Mm. When you have countries like as developed countries and well-off countries like the US, the UK, you know, European powerhouses contributing to the majority of climate change, but those who are affected are the ones who don't actually have the capacity to deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's almost like, oh, here is me messing this all up for you. 
knowing that you don't have the ability to fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, it's just kind of, it's just kind of like it screws you over in, in every sense of it. You know why that's a, you know why that's a very good point, Will? Because if you even take, take it one step further, which countries have the most power in terms of setting, you know, international climate change regulations? It's the bigger countries, right? So mm-hmm. if they're not suffering the own consequences of their own action, then they, you know, they're not able to see the real impact on smaller communities. So climate yeah. change, you know, you can say it's a hoax because if you're living in, you know, San Francisco, it maybe doesn't mean as much to you. But if you're, you know, if you're a farmer in a rural community in, you know, Nigeria, for example, and then it hasn't rained for three months, you're feeling the direct effects of it. So I think that was one of the main goals with reframing the conversation of, of climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even just the idea of misinformation, like in our last episode, we talked about health misinformation and just the consequences and deadly impacts of that. And mm-hmm. even just when looking at climate change as a topic, like I'm sure we can all think of instances where, you know, we've encountered someone or have heard of someone who just either spews complete false information about climate change or has been affected um, as a victim of false information, right? It's like they don't believe it because, you know, so-and-so sent them these articles that are like hoaxes or that, that talk about, you know, climate change not actually being an issue and this is all just part of the normal cycle and everything. But, you know, it's health information is deadly and in every sector, in every topic, it's kind of just pop, seems like it's popping its head up everywhere. Right. And um, in um, in terms of uh, COVID-19 and, and climate change, you know, people might not think the two are related. So, for example, you think of climate change and environmental health. Um, it can be argued that human activity in terms of interacting with wild animals, for example, um, accelerates the process by which virus can jump from animals like bats and pangolins to humans, right? And part of this is, you know, deforestation that, you know, changes the health of our planet. And when you take all this into account, climate change can be considered a wicked problem because every action uh, essentially influences um, the rate of which the, you know, climate change occurs, which can then have direct effects on us, like, you know, heat strokes, or it could be something indirect with expanding the habitable zones for mosquitoes. So, for example, the Aedes aegypti, uh, you know, a mos- species of m- mosquito that carries dengue fever, as the planet begins to warm, the range of these mosquitoes might expand from tropical to more um, northern and, and more temperate climates. Mm-hmm. So this will also impact the distribution of diseases. And countries like, you know, the United States that might not be experienced with seeing uh, stuff like, you know, malaria, you know, as these vector-borne diseases carried by mosquitoes uh, can travel and live in climates that were considered too cold and that are now warm enough for them to live, uh, we, we can expect more people and the distribution of disease to expand. Yeah. You know, well, well, you brought up a great point that I wanted to talk about in the sense of how climate change is framed in addition to misinformation, because we all know that climate change is a, is a negative thing that's happening upon the world. But as we learned from Dr. Fazal is that oftentimes when you're able to fit in misinformation, you got to put in some truth in it, right? You got to mix it together because people who advocate that climate change is not a thing that we should worry about often use its positive effects. So for example, fewer winter deaths in temperate climates and increased food production at certain areas, okay, 
you know, these are positive effects. But when we look at the bigger picture, and as Gordon said, all of these more complex global dilemmas happening, like it's it's very difficult to combat the whole climate change narrative and perspective mm-hmm. without focusing on the more complex interactions, how they work. For example, yeah. like Gordon brought up the great point of malaria being introduced to the United States, something that they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the result of factor A, B, C, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, right. it's a more complex thing working together. And we can't just focus on one positive as a means right. to mask the rest of everything else. Yeah. I, I just wanted to share one last thing about um, those mosquito-borne vector diseases, mm-hmm. um, in particular dengue fever. Um, mm-hmm. In a lot of what, like my work, I've come kind of been exposed to just how the range of dengue has increased, not just mm-hmm. not even like northward but more like altitude wise. So if you mm. look at places like um, it's around Nepal where, you know, you have a lot of these Himalayan communities, which typically don't experience this, this disease because, you know, mosquitoes, they can't go up that high, but, you know, but given the changing climate, changing atmospheric pressure and all that stuff, they've been able to, you know, reach these communities, infect the individuals and those individuals there, as we discussed at the beginning, have never encountered something like this. So they don't know how to deal with it. Similar thing is happening in South America, you know, in like the Andes, where you have a lot of remote um, communities up in the mountains who, you know, have never experienced this, are being exposed to this because these mosquitoes are traveling higher in altitude. It's crazy. Crazy. Very, very crazy. Yeah, this actually brings me back to some of my previous experience working in Thailand. I had the opportunity to go in some of the rural communities up in Thailand. Um, and what I went there for was to see some of the farms. So... A lot of these farms are very tight-knit with many other farms in the different provinces in Thailand. Um, and one of their biggest concerns, and they figured that this would be a very um, important thing to deal with right now rather than later, was the issue of climate change. So what they do every um, month or so is a, is farmers from each of the provinces in Thailand get together and have some sort of mini conference. And I I, I was uh, lucky enough to be invited as one of the guests to speak at one of these conferences. And um, it's very um, interesting what they're doing is they're creating some sort of coalition between all these farmers in these different Mm -hmm. provinces to ensure that they work together and share different sustainable technologies that will help them kind of mitigate the effects of climate change. So I think Mm. having these kind of discussions and first of all, identifying it as a priority is going to be very important. So I'm glad that they were doing that. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted, I want to talk about one last point um, before maybe we can move on to the next theme, but Mm. it's the idea of increase in ocean temperatures and just, all of the effects of that. What, in terms whether of marine biolife? Sure, but even just if you take that step further in terms of human health, right? Mm. If you, I mean, if if you have, you know, f- whole fisheries, you know, areas where typically, you know, where sw- had a lot of fish, had a lot of you know, marine wildlife species that were able to kind of you know, support an ecosystem and you know, increase in ocean temperature. If, if those zones get killed off, you know, you have... You're affecting individuals' um, way of life. You know, people mm. who typically rely on fishing and for for to make their living, they'll be affected. You have things like the whole sectors of the economy, like um, fisheries, and all the people who are directly and even indirectly employed in that in that sector, they'll all be affected. And then another point would be even just 
tourism, right? You have if things like coral reefs that we hear about getting being right. bleached. If you, oh, yeah. And you have nations who depend on tourism and you know, people coming to, to see these majestic organisms in their natural mm. habitats. If, if if they're not there, no one's going to come kind of thing, right? right. It's, mm. it's, just a, it's just unfortunate, very, very sad topic for sure. Definitely. Yeah. It's, so I think climate change, because there's so many components to it, it can almost be a little bit overwhelming to think about where you start to address climate change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for one thing we could probably um, address as a subset or uh, or one element that influences climate change is uh, air pollution. So, you know, air pollution is linked to approximately 7 million deaths per year, right? So, and one of the problems with air pollution is, as we've discussed today, usually it's uh, higher income countries that are responsible for the largest or the greater proportion of the carbon, the global carbon footprint. And then, you know, lower and middle income countries are left with the, the blunt of the effects. So uh, if, if you're in a bubble, for example, like a city, um, there's a lot of things that, you know, cities can do to help reduce their carbon uh, footprint for their country. Uh, and sustainable cities is, I know, something that Will is very interested in. Uh, and how that influences uh, air pollution and, you know, the need to transition to green energy. Yeah, for sure. I think just the way we think about cities and just the movement of people within cities and between cities needs to be reexamined as the planet and as us as a human society move towards a more sustainable future. Because let's just take North America, for for example, our reliance on family and individual vehicles over things like public transit is mm-hmm. a significant factor that impacts climate change and just air pollution. And it's not even that people are choosing you know, it's not to take these public transportation. It's because I think, frankly, they're just so poorly planned and so inefficient that people don't have a choice. You know, it's like mm-hmm. if I want to get from point A to point B, if I drive sure it'll take me five minutes 10 minutes if i take the bus it'll take me half an hour right it's like and like you know everyone has their has their you know has has life you know things that happen in life you know if i'm kind of there thinking about if i want to wait 40 minutes to take the bus or if i want to just get to work in 10 minutes obviously i'm going to take the 10 minutes because it frees up time and it's more time efficient also what we have to do is we have to keep industry accountable because we talked a lot about like cities and what we can do as individuals and public transit and stuff. But I don't think the blame could all, should solely be on individuals because if we look at example, what happened with Volkswagen in 2015, I don't know if you guys know, but they had basically a huge scandal where they violated the Clean Air Act and the United States Environmental Protection Agency was able to figure them out. So high level, quick explanation. They said that your emissions from your muffler or whatever have to be beyond a certain level. And there's like the standardized tests. They were able to fake the test. So they were considered to be clean cars, quotation marks. But in reality, they were emitting as much pollutants as before. Right. And then here we we have policy, we have laws and regulations, and you think that they should all protect us, but we still have industries violating these for the sake of profit. You know, we have to take, we have to look at how do we make clean air profitable at this point, which is a sad way of framing it. 
but I think that's just at the point where we might be at, right? True. So I, I think that's that's actually a really good point because one of the big bigger questions is how do we make policymakers think of this um, as sort of an investment that'll pay off very greatly in the future? So Jock, Dr. Pats was also talking about this in his talk. He was saying that the cost of cleaner energy would be $30 per ton of CO2. And that by, if you invest in this, by avoiding every ton of CO2 through these cleaner energies, you save $200 per ton by every ton you avoid. And those that increase in savings comes from all the health consequences you avoid from stuff like air pollution um, and all the associated diseases that come along with that. So I think it's important to maybe looking at this in terms of how much savings we can make on the downstream rather than thinking about that barrier to investment of that $30. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the way we need to frame it right now, it needs to be a more direct link between our health and you know economic savings mm-hmm. uh, related to climate change. If we frame it that way, it will be easier for you know, decision makers, policy makers to, you know, seriously think about it and uh, implement some dramatic actions to address climate change. So, for example, um, you know, there's multiple pathways where, say, air pollution can affect our health. One example of that is particulate matter. So it's directly affecting you know, people's respiratory health. Right. And that is directly contributing to the economic or you know the 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 costs that are impeding our health system. Right. So, when policymakers begin thinking about it this way, uh, cost savings and improved healthcare, then right. yeah, noticeable action will be implemented. So one of the barriers that I see being there, kind of blocking the transition towards cleaner and renewable energies, it seems like it's something that I've that I see just in the whole. Every time there's a new piece of tech, a new innovation, it's just that hesitancy to to jump onto it, right? And I think one way to tackle that would probably be through you know increased research and development, increased exposure, so that mm. um, the, this product or even just this sector can become more accessible for the general public. Because if we if we even just look at electric electric cars, and go back ten years, ten years ago, if you were to say, oh, you know, I can drive a car. Um, that's fully run by by a battery that I can charge in my garage, like what Tesla's doing. People would look at you and be like, you're crazy. There's no way. You know, we're all <laughs> about the diesel, about the just regular um, petrol, right? But I think it's with the, the constant evolution and changing and innovation and just research and development that they've driven the price low enough that even people in the general public realize, oh, you know, this is this is something that I could potentially see myself using and not just something for the, the super elite or the super techie people. And, you know, that's a, <laughs> even when you, um, when you think about it, I just, it just came to my mind. When you think about it, even the process of acquiring, I guess, quote unquote, dirty energy is harmful for the environment. So it's not only burning fossil fuels that's, that's contributing to climate change. It's the process of actually getting it processing it before it even gets to you know the pump where you can you know use it for gas Mm -hmm. so the whole process contributes to climate change and at you know at every stage there's essentially an opportunity to minimize the global carbon footprint 
So I want to I want to go back to the the transportation, the unintended consequences of the way cities are built and the accessibility to motorized vehicles. So our over dependence on uh, these motorized vehicles increases the likelihood that you'll live a sedentary lifestyle. So you'll become less active than before. And I can speak to this myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the longest, I wasn't a car owner till um, I turned 30, which was very recently. And before that, I would walk everywhere. And I was, even though I didn't go to the, to the gym, I was in pretty good shape. And I find that now that I have a car, I don't walk anywhere. Even mm. the, the you know, my local uh, drugstore is about one kilometer away from me. So a nine minute walk, I drive there, drive there and back. So even at a personal level, I'm seeing, you know, while my carbon footprint might be insignificant, if there's a lot of people in my shoes doing doing the same thing, um, this is going to impact my health down the road. Um by being physically inactive, you, you're more likely to die prematurely from, you know, complications of cardiovascular disease, hypertension. Um, and simultaneously, you're contributing to uh, climate change. So something simple as, you know, walking more when you're able to. I understand a lot of people aren't able to walk or or go certain distances. It's benefiting your own health as well as the environment. So that's part of the whole framing are reshaping the conversation on climate change that um, what you're doing for your own self also helps the environment out a lot. Yeah, I just want to share a bit about um, kind of just this idea of walkability in terms of the urban landscape, right? Um, this is a topic that's very, I'm very passionate about. So I, it's if you look at, if you look back in history and realize that when did cities start moving away from you know more walkable i guess city plans to what we have now with like kind of like the sprawl and the need for a vehicle um, a lot of it happened kind of during the post-war eras where um, they had this idea of the sub the suburbs kind of emerged right and what you, you have now like things such as like cul-de-sacs where it's you just it's essentially like a dead end branch off of like a street and mm-hmm. things like these if you if you look at for example a child or even like a teenager maybe maybe like 50 years ago they would typically be walking from place to place or even taking bicycles but nowadays mm-hmm. if you have someone who's living who's living like in a cul-de-sac and you're trying to get from that point to let's say their buddy's house you have really you really have no um, efficient way of getting from that point to the other point other than just driving mm-hmm. and and i think that's I, I don't know if it's something that a lot of city planners or cities are beginning to realize because from my personal experience, at least in Canada, you do see that, you know, cities are continuing to sprawl out more outwards and just continuing to have these just, you know, your your cookie cutter houses in, in like a row in like a new subdivision. And, you know, the only way to get from there to your nearest grocery store or the nearest school is by driving. Right. So when we think about you know, the, this need to reevaluate how cities are planned, that's me speaking very much from a North American developed country perspective, right? But I wonder if if this if you can kind of take this lens and put it on a lower middle income country or one that's currently in the process of developing, like is what do you guys think this is something that's that's even feasible there? 
like say for example Syria, everything was pretty much walking distance. You can use a bicycle. You can walk anywhere. Uh, even like the a huge city like Damascus, you know, the capital of Syria. Yeah, everything was pretty much walking distance. If you want to shop, walking distance because the city was built based on people' uh, ability to walk, not driving. And I think that's pretty much the case for like most developing countries. But what I also think is that now that they're developing mm-hmm. um, and becoming more industrious, they're moving away from that. And going into, you know, how United States or Canada have it, uh, yeah. suburbs and whatnot. And yeah, if, you know, the, if this problem is not, doesn't get addressed in the in the near future, then they're going to run into the same problems as we run into now. 100%. Like, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. You think even just if you look back at and look at, say, China, how in the last 20 years, car ownership has skyrocketed, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that came with i guess owning a vehicle it's very much on like a western you know european um north american you know idea of you know every family having a car you know being able mm-hmm. to drive your family from place point a to point b kind of thing and i think it's very much attached with prestige or even just like wealth right yeah. and i think for a lot of these developing countries um i think it would be important to kind of reclassify and reconsider what wealth really is and not i guess for them to hopefully learn from what we in the in the north america or europe have done and realize that you know instead of following that same trajectory of sprawl and having suburbs start rising up just focusing back into the community aspect of you know sustainable walkable communities rather than you know needing to own a car just for the sake of having one As we have seen from our discussion, climate change and public health are intimately related. We see that climate change will lead to direct implications regarding the transmission of certain diseases, pollution, food security, and environmental refugees, among others. Global warming has been synonymous with polar bears and melting ice caps. In our discussion, we talked about some of the ways we can reframe the narrative in order to start thinking about climate change in terms of being a threat to human and ecosystem health. We also mentioned some of the potential unintended consequences associated with this. As Dr. Pats mentioned, we can all support safe school routes, physically fit people, cities designed for people, not just vehicles, clean air, and the preservation of natural resources for a healthier future. We recognize the immense challenge that lies ahead, but it seems more clear than ever that global issues such as climate change must entail global solutions. Thanks for listening. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.